Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. We're going to study a, a passage of Scripture that covers uh, uh, prophecy and history and things that are very relevant for the church today, the church at large, our church locally, but the church at large as well. And I just have a feeling that you're going to want to take a lot of notes tonight if you're a note taker and you're a studier of the Word of God and you really want to jump in with us. So I hope you're ready. Get ready. Uh, we've been meeting uh, in person now for several weeks at the Rowwood Retreat out past Highway, out past the Loveless Cafe on Highway 100. And we just had a wonderful service there this past Sunday, Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. So if you're, if you're looking for somewhere to meet with the body of Christ in person and you don't know where to do that yet because of this COVID stuff, we want to invite you guys to join us. Nashville, Tennessee, out on the west part of town, past the Loveless Cafe on Highway 100 at the Rowwood Retreat. Check out our Facebook page for the address and all of that good stuff. And of course, I always continue to join us here on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. so we can touch base here as well. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, it's exciting to be alive in this period of history. It's exciting to be a part of the body of Christ, the church that God has selected to live through the things that we are witnessing on a daily basis. It feels like uh, almost on a daily basis that we're seeing things of prophetic relevance, end time prophetic relevance at that happening or potentially happening right before our very eyes. So we want to be plugged in. We want you to be plugged into the body of Christ. So reach out, send a message, come visit service, whatever it is, guys. Uh, <clears throat> with that said, please check out lifestorychurch.com. That's our church website where you find out who we are, what we believe, why we believe it. You'll find links to our media content. We've got podcasts now on Spotify and iTunes, so take full advantage of that. Whether you're cleaning the house, you're traveling, or you're working out, whatever it is, a lot of people are listening to podcasts nowadays, so check out our podcast and subscribe to that. Also, if you've never gone to our YouTube page, maybe you're watching this on Facebook, don't go anywhere if you're on Facebook. When we're done here tonight, I encourage you to go subscribe on Facebook. If you're on YouTube watching this, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and click subscribe there. So with that said, I think I hit all of the bases that our media team would like me to hit. So I want to begin tonight, <clears throat> I want to begin tonight with a word of prayer. Can we do that? You guys feel up to praying right now? Yeah, let's do that. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, right now tonight, we just commit this time to you, Father. And we ask that you'd open the eyes of our hearts tonight, Lord, to see things that maybe we haven't seen before, but to see the things which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would like us to see. The things that perhaps He is whispering to us, or perhaps we've been closing our eyes and shutting our ears to. Lord Jesus, we ask that you just have your way. And that there's a divine appointment tonight behind every single person that's watching this broadcast right now, that they'd not click off it or scroll off it, that they would endure and they would take in this information and they would, they would hear what the Spirit says to the churches tonight. Lord Jesus, just have your way with this time. We humbly, humbly commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. So Revelation is where we find these letters to the churches. Can I see our sermon series title? Do we have that tonight, Evangeline? Thank you. 
letters to the churches. We're doing a study of Revelations chapter 1 through 4 because that's where we find these letters. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches and he revealed them to John. The Father revealed them to him and then he revealed them to John. And we find them in Revelation. Not Revelations, but Revelation, right? It's one revelation that God gave his church through John. Revelation is the consummation of all things. Consummation of all things. It is the only book <clears throat> in the Bible, excuse me, that carries a special promise of blessing to the reader. Not only to the reader, but in chapter 1, verse 3, to the reader and anybody hears this word being read. So if you're going to listen in tonight, there's a special blessing for you in here. Pretty cool. What audacity, huh? No other, no other book in the Bible promises a special blessing to its reader. It's audacious. There's 404 verses containing over 800 allusions from the Old Testament, indirect references from the Old Testament, that the writer assumes, that being Jesus and the Apostle, through the Apostle John, assume that you'll know. So how important are churches out there today that say, hey, don't worry about the Old Testament. We have the gospel of grace now. Don't worry about the Old Testament. Guys, <laughs> that's a bad way to go when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in terms, assuming that you understand the Old Testament, right? So, the Old Testament is the New Testament revealed, and the New Testament, the Old Testament concealed. So, we need them both through the full counsel of God. Indirect references, over 800 of them in this book. This is the climax of God's plan for mankind. Probably, probably important that we read it and do our best to understand it. Amen? So where we have been studying so far, we've been studying through these seven, seven churches, these seven churches uh, of Revelation, uh, Ephesus being one, Smyrna being two, Pergamus being three, Thyatira was last week being four, and today we come to Sardis. So I'm not going to go through a lot of the different stuff that I've been covering every single week and refreshing your memory with because I have a lot to get to and I don't want to miss anything tonight. So uh, if you're joining in tonight and you're blessed by this message, I encourage you with all my heart to go back and watch the previous lessons, Letters to the Churches. There's four other parts you'll find in a format just like this and you can get yourself caught up moving forward. Okay. So Sardis, let's go there first. Can I see our first graphic on this? I've got some information for you note takers. This was a real city. This was a real city, just like all of the other seven churches. They were real cities that had real problems, real people struggling with real things. And Jesus wrote a letter to them, uh, admonishing them, giving them advice, telling him what he's happy about, so on and so forth. And... Uh, we cover a lot of that back in our previous messages, and we'll briefly touch on that a bit later. However, this city, Sardis, a real city, it is an ancient city known for luxury in Asia Minor, the capital of Lydia. <clears throat> it was mentioned as a city of renown by Greek writers as early as 2000 BC. Can you wrap your mind around that? <clears throat> I remember when I was a kid growing up in South Dakota, we, we had our <clears throat> bicentennial. That means, <clears throat> I think it was 1989. That means that we were a whole 200 years old, not as a city, as a state we were 200 years old. Here is a city that dates back as far as 2000 BC. In the 9th and 8th centuries BC, the Phygrians, they were the uh, dominant uh, Anatolian power at the time, their king was Midas. 
He was credited by the Greeks with power to change anything that he touched into gold. Now, you guys have heard of the Midas touch, right? Maybe you've heard it on a TV commercial. There's a tire store, I think it is, or a garage of some kind. I think it's a tire store called Midas, am I right? Uh, and their slogan is the Midas touch. Well, what is that? Maybe you've never studied Greek history. Well, now you know. It turns anything to gold. It was more... Uh, it was, moreover, one of the oldest and more, most important cities of Asia Minor until 549 BC. And I'm skipping a lot of history here, guys, okay? It was a strategic location between a couple cities that you might recognize per our studies, Pergamus, Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, and then Phygia, Phygia, excuse me. Those are churches that were not a far distance, some 48 miles, some 58 mile, 55 miles, not far from each other were these seven churches of Revelation. In any case, in any case uh, Sardis was known for its favorable commerce, and it became a very wealthy city with a king like Midas. Jeez, wouldn't you assume as much, right? It was known for its lush vineyards and wine. Wealth, luxury, are you getting the picture here, guys? Gold was found in the sand of the river Pactolus. Gold and silver, Lydian staters, money, coins, they were the first coins. The first coins came out of this city. Gold and silver coins. At its zenith, Croesus, its king, and the river became proverbial for riches. Jesus is writing a letter to a city known for its wealth. Its patron deity was the goddess Sibyl, whose son was Midas, the wealthy king of Phrygia. And you, uh, you know, you scholars, if I'm saying that wrong, you just comment and let me know. I write Phrygia, that's how I read it. Anyway, Midas, you've heard of Midas. I mentioned him with, uh, with the, you know, the TV commercial and all that stuff. That's of interest to me. It jumped out at me. So let me share this with you. There's a mythology that goes along with this King Midas, and I touched on it briefly already. He could Anything he touches, he could turn to gold, right? You, do you know anybody like that? I don't know. But anyway, let, let me share this with you. Here's his mythology. For offering, his, uh, uh, offering the companion of the god Dionysus, the companion was named Satyr Selenus, for offering his companion hospitality, Dionysus, the god of wine, offered to grant King Midas anything he wished. And this is just Greek mythology for you guys, okay? Nothing biblical here. The king requested that everything he touched would turn to gold, but he soon regretted his decision because even his food and water turned to gold. That would be a problem if you could imagine. So to free himself from enchantment, Dionysus instructed him to bathe in the river Pactolus. It was said afterward that the sands of the river contained gold, and indeed, the sands of the river did contain gold. They, they mined gold. They panned for gold. And just like you think of a 49er in San Francisco, right? Panning for gold. Do you see how Greek mythology, how the mindset of the day can kind of take something like, well, there's gold in the riverbed. And then we have these uh, uh, demigods and, 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 and pagan gods, Greek gods that are all descended from Babylon and and, uh, you know, uh, Nephilim demonology and all of this stuff. And so they've got this mindset and they find gold in the river. And like, suddenly, 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 somehow out of that, a story comes that, that Midas, who oversaw the growth of such wealth in that city, uh, 
he must have been blessed with turning everything to gold and then the story of bathing and there you have that explains it right there's gold in the riverbed because of this so you see kind of how you know how the 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 Greek mind works, or worked in that time anyway, right? So let me share with you, let's keep going, guys. All right, because I got a lot to get to, and if I can get through it quickly tonight, then wonderful. But, you know, we'll just see, huh? <laughs> More history that matters. Here you go. Let's read this. Uh, actually, before we do, let me explain something to you about the city the city of Sardis that you need to understand, otherwise a lot of this won't make a whole lot of sense. The city of Sardis was ge geographically located on a cliff. Have you guys ever seen, uh, hands up, say me, thumbs up, if you've ever seen the movie Lord of the Rings? Yes, I know you've seen it, Eva. I know you've seen it, Andrew, all right. So the Lord of the Rings, if you remember the, uh, the third movie, there was a city that was on a cliff. Do you guys remember that? On top, there's a city that shot out onto a cliff, and there's a big white castle and a dead tree out front. You remember that? Anyway, I kind of think of that when I think of this. Sardis was on a cliff. Three sides of its defense were on a cliff. Oh, the only way into the city was from one side of the city to enter in because three sides of the city were on cliffs that were, that were between 950 feet straight down and some uh, people even say 15, some sources even say 1,500 feet straight down. So if you can imagine, there's your city and over the side of three of the walls is a 1,500 foot drop or a minimum 1,000 foot drop. But then the only one way in, it led to a reputation, an early reputation for the city of Sardis that it was impenetrable. Because their defenses, all they had to do was guard one side. There was no sneaking in the back door. There was no finding a weakness on three sides of the cliffs, right? Or so they, many people thought for so long. So uh, with that in mind, can we go back to our graphic? More history that matters. In the year 549 BC, they were besieged by King Cyrus and the Persians. Yes, that's that King Cyrus, that Bible King Cyrus, okay? They were besieged by the Persians. Croesus, the king, left three of those cliffs unguarded, as they would typically do. So Cyrus decided to do a, a siege. Well, after 14 days of the siege, Cyrus, frustrated, offered a reward to any man that could find a way to scale the unscalable walls. One soldier, Herodias, noticed a soldier dropped his helmet over the side and he observed the path that the soldier took down to retrieve it. Thus, that night they scaled the wall and took the city. Dang, what a way to lose the city, are you kidding me? Think about this for a second. Oh, he's supposed to be a watchman on the wall, a soldier on the wall. But he, the, apparently they had grown so comfortable with the, with the thought that nobody will ever penetrate these walls. And they got sloppy, they got lazy, and he dropped his helmet over the side. I mean, I'm just telling you, some of you military guys will know, that wouldn't fly. That wouldn't fly in most military situations, especially for a watchman on the wall. You dropped your helmet over the side. Not only did you drop your helmet over the side, all right, I get it, accidents happen. But with the uh, opposing army looking on, you take the path down to retrieve your helmet and then you head back up? Talk about being slack in your responsibilities. Uh, so thusly, you know, they, the, they, they attacked at night once that route was discovered and they took the city. Cyrus took the city. 
And then history moves on, history moves on. Uh, empires rise and fall. You guys know, you guys know how, uh, generally how history goes. Until we arrive at the year 214 BC, okay? And you're going to see shortly why all of this is very relevant to, to why, why Sardis was chosen, but also well, why, why Sardis was chosen? All right, let's, let's go to this next graphic. Uh, in 214 BC, Antiochus, you know who Antiochus is? Yes, that Antiochus, okay? He utilized the same vulnerability, the same vulnerability that Cyrus had used to take Sardis for the Seleucid Empire. Not again, are you, are you kidding me, right? That's the same way. So the same way that Sardis was taken by Cyrus 300 years prior, its defenses are back up, it's recovering, it's under new leadership, new empire, new rule, everything else. You'd think that the generational people who lived there would remember the stories of how the guy dropped his helmet and, re and, 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 and maybe they might guard that entrance or that side a little bit more or be more aware of it. No, not at all. The same vulnerability was exposed. In other words, church, the Sardines, not sardines, or is it the Sardines? The sardines, the sardines, the sardines. They didn't learn their lesson. I love this quote. Uh, I love this quote, quote by uh, uh, Haggai. Can we read this? It says this. It says, history teaches that man learns nothing from history. Do you get that? I think history teaches man, if nothing else, it teaches that man learns nothing from history, and that sure seems to be the case. It would you, I just don't know. Don't you think by now the world would figure out that communism doesn't work? Socialism didn't go so well in Venezuela, guys, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Capitalism, our constitutional republic, has led to the greatest exporter of charity in the history of the world. We should be proud of this country. Anyway, all right, let's not get off on that, right? So let me ask you guys this. Let me take all of this information in. Take all this information in, okay? And ask yourself this question. Is there a church throughout history? Is there a church throughout history that you can point to that one could say of it, are you ready? They are rich. They are rich, wealthy. They are known for luxury. Yet, they fail to learn their lesson. I'll let you comment. Somebody's got to comment. Is there a church throughout history that you can say of it, they are rich, they are wealthy, they are known for luxury, yet they fail to learn their lesson? Remember, a church is its people. A church is its people. You are the church. I hope the building isn't the church because then Life Story Church is in trouble. We don't have a building, right? So, by the way, if anybody wants to, watching this, you know, across the world wants to, you know, give us a church building, that'd be great. But we don't have a church building. The church is you. It's me. It's all of us. It's the body of Christ coming together, sharing our, our gifts, serving our gifts to one another, linking arms, mending hearts together. Amen? You are the church. People, a, a church is its people. Think about that. Wealthy, wealthy, 
but fails to learn its lessons. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody like that? Is it you? God forbid, right? Let me share this with you. With that in mind, with the identity of Sardis being known, laid out before us who they were, it's not surprising that God would write a letter to the church with that sort of background and culture, is it? Let's see something else here. Sardis was also known as a city of failure. Can I see that graphic? The name becomes synonymous with pretensions without justification. Sound like anybody you've known or any churches around or historically or lately? Promise without performance. Well, it's so promising, but not really delivering what the Word of God or the Spirit would have them deliver. So promise without performance. Appearance without reality. Appearing, appearing a certain way, but not really being that way in reality. False confidence that heralded ruin. The name Sardis became synonymous with false confidence that heralded ruin. And ultimately, <clears throat> they betrayed themselves by a lack of watchfulness and diligence. My, my, my. Church, if you're asking me, if you're asking me, this may be the most relevant letter of all the seven churches for the church today. This might be the most, of all the ones that we've studied through the past few weeks, this might be the most relevant of all of them for the church today. I believe that we see the spirit of these churches not only throughout history, but alive and well in the churches today. I do. Do you see it? Do you agree with that statement? The instruction and warnings that these letters are of these letters, they are imperatively relevant to specific churches today that are all around us. And at the same time, these warnings and instructions are relevant to us today as well. Mm. Case in point. Can I see those de design elements of each church? Case in point. Let's see that graphic. Let's see that graphic of the design elements. As we study these letters, we've noticed that there's Christ first names the church, then he gives himself a title, one of the seven titles that he had already uh, previously outlined in uh, chapter one. He then gives them a commendation, tells them what they've done well. Then he shares with them their concern. Then he encourages them. Then he leaves a promise to the overcomer. Uh, we find uh, the, the promise to the overcomer. Who is the overcomer? Well, we find that comes to us, and I don't have it on the screen for you guys, but the promise to the overcomer, identifying who the overcomer is, can be found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 through 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Guess what it is? Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who's the overcomer, church? You are the overcomer. All right. Promise to the overcomer. And then lastly, in the design elements, uh, he says, He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the church, what the Spirit says to the churches. So uh, re it's relevant to cover those design elements right off the bat here because as we study the church of Sardis, keep in mind all of the history, what that city is known for, what those people 
we're known for. Keep that in mind when I tell you that there is no commendation in this letter. Of all the seven letters, he tells everybody what they've done well. He's got nothing good to say about Sardis in this letter. It jumps directly from the title of Christ straight to his concern. He has nothing good to say. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he, here comes his title of Christ, he gives himself the title. These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember the seven spirits? The title here suggests that the Holy Spirit is the answer to their problem. Remember that as we, as we read on here. Seven spirits. Can I see that seven spirits graphic, Evangeline? Seven spirits. We see seven spirits referenced throughout the Word of God, multiple places, especially in Revelation. Seven spirits shared in the greeting to the churches in chapter 1, verse 4. Christ himself dictated the seven letters in chapter 1, verse 19, yet each letter was what the Spirit said, as chapter 2, verse 7 says. So Christ dictated it, but he said this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. So remember, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God three in one, each party equal to the other. The Spirit says... Later, we see that the seven spirits were before his throne in chapter 4, verse 5, and that the Lamb's seven eyes were the seven spirits in chapter 5, verse 6. The seven spirits seem to re represent the sevenfold, or com uh, and this is Henry H. Halley, which is, he is just amazing. Write that name down, guys, and look up his uh, uh, biblical handbook material, just incredible. Uh, I think he wrote it in like 19, I'm going to get it wrong, 1926 or 19... Something like that. Anyway, the seven spirits seem to represent the sevenfold or complete operation of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, all in one, and the same Spirit in fullness of His power, the form in which Christ works in and with, hear that now, the form in which Christ works in and with His churches in the age between His first coming which was 32 AD roughly, and his second coming. The seven spirits. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which are the angels of each church, as if you recall. Let's keep reading. Uh, let's keep reading uh, verse 1. I know your works. Here comes the concern. Here comes the concern. I know your works, he says. <laughs> okay, now, God, this just blatantly tells us God knows, okay? I know your works. God knows. God knows what you're up to, okay? Now, that can be good news for you. or Let me ask you, is that good news for you or is that bad news for you? I don't know. But God knows. I know your works, he said, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead, dead, dead. He didn't say it three times. I am. Just for effect, Okay? With everything in mind of who they are, what's going on, he says to this church, the Holy Spirit and the absence thereof may be your problem and or the Holy Spirit could be the solution. I know your works. And you know what I know about your works? That people think you're doing great. People think that you're doing good. But I know your works, that you have a name, a reputation 
that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, let me ask you this, church. Let's get to the nitty-gritty here. You guys like to do that, don't you? Let's get down to the meat on the bone. Is there a church alive today that is wealthy, that is busy? A church alive today that is active? Think about this. Think of these words as I'm saying. They're wealthy. They're busy. They're active. They have a reputation for success and they have a reputation for thriving. Maybe even a lot of people are coming, right? Yet this church fails to learn its lessons. The people in, as a as a as a corporate entity, they fail to learn their lessons. But not only that, but think of this on a local level. The people that attend fail to learn, fail to learn, fail to learn what the Holy Spirit would openly teach them if he was present or if they would listen, right? This is a church that is wealthy. It's rich, man. It is, it's got money. It's not a problem. It's busy. It's active. It has a reputation for su- success. It has a reputation for thriving, yet it fails to learn and it's dead inside. Whew. Oh, my goodness. What constitutes dead? What's that mean? It's still a church, right? God is still calling them a church, which means ecclesia, which means they still gather in his name. So they're still considered a church by him. They gather and they, they do so and they hold the banner of Christ. You've got to remember, keep in mind what I've always say. You know, uh, to take the name of the Lord in vain has nothing to do with language and swearing. Now, it doesn't say don't say the name of the Lord in vain. It says don't take the name of the Lord of, in vain. And when we break that down in the Greek, we see that it means don't take it on you as a banner, hold it up and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But then you do it in an empty and meaningless way. That's taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Are there, are there, is there a church alive today that's running around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And we're rich and we're busy and we're active and uh, and all this and all that, but yet they fail to learn their lesson over and over again, and ultimately they're left dead. They're left dead. They're left empty inside. What constitutes dead? The absence of the true gospel is what constitutes a dead church. What is the true gospel? Faith plus nothing equals salvation. You've heard me say that a million times, right? What is the gospel of grace? That God extended his grace to us, that by faith we're saved. We have to do nothing but receive it as a gift, right? That is what leads to salvation. But let me ask you this now. What was necessary for such grace? What was necessary? What had to happen for us to receive such grace? Does anybody know? Can you answer for me? Blood. Blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, sinless, full of love, brutally crucified, his blood spilled out on the earth for you. That's what it costs, church. Is is the blood of Christ taught in your church? Is the blood of Christ taught in your church? Is the full, let me say it this way, is the full weight, is the full weight of Christ's sacrifice a point of emphasis in your church? Or is it cheap grace? 
Is it cheap grace discounting the price that was paid or ignoring it altogether? Is it a bloodless cross that you think of, that you put your hope in? Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of cheap grace. I think he might have coined the phrase. He said this. Can I see this quote? He said this. Cheap grace. He said this of cheap grace. He said, of course you have sinned. Of course you have sinned, but now everything is forgiven. This is him defining what cheap grace is. It's when the church says, of course you've sinned, but now you know what? Everything is forgiven, so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. The cheap grace, cheap grace being taught in his church is when the preacher preaches, come as you are, stay how you are. You're perfect just the way you are. You're good. Just come in. We're not going to be annoying and, and point out things <laughs> that the Holy Spirit is pointing out to us that you should probably pray about. And you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to bother you with pushing you to help you grow. We're not going to worry about discipleship. You just come. It's a party. Let's have a good time, all right? Let's just celebrate. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Activities, 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 right? Busy, busy, busy. Money, 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 right? <sighs> A bloodless cross. Church. The recipient, the recipient of grace by faith, hear me now. The recipient of grace by faith is transformed. Transformed. Jesus doesn't just find you where you are in the sewer and come down to the sewer with you and stay in the sewer. He reaches a hand out of darkness, or into the darkness where you are, and he pulls you into the light. He pulls you to where he is, out of your sin, out of your selfishness, out of your decay, your soiled state. The recipient of grace faith is transformed in their heart, in their mind, the heart and the mind, in their desires to honor their king. Recipient of grace is sealed by and inhabited by the Holy Spirit, which is in and of itself God, God himself, the, thir the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. It's within you, within your heart. It's transformative. How does that not change you on a fundamental level in your, in your mind, in your desires, and everything? Of course it does. The recipient of grace by faith is transformed. And the Holy Spirit, being God, guess what? Is not okay with the sin that you have reveled in. And if you're new in your transformation, you know because you feel guilty and you feel the Holy Spirit leading you out of the darkness. Yet your flesh tries to pull you back in. And the apostate church of Sardis tries to tell you to no, you can have Jesus too. You can have Jesus and no, you don't have to change. You, don't, you can have Jesus and not change. <laughs> it's not about you changing. 
If you truly have Jesus and if you have truly met Jesus and the Holy Spirit has sealed your heart, it's less about you making changes in your life. He changes you. Do you understand? That, that occurrence changes, changes you. So if that hasn't happened to you, yet you've been going to church for years maybe and, and you've been a part of, of everybody else running around holding up signs, Jesus, 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 but there's no fruit, there's no blood on the cross. Right? It's dead inside. Maybe this is news to you. Maybe this is a salvational moment, because I can tell you one thing. There are, there are a lot of people in church in America today that think they're saved, and it is not the Jesus of the Bible that they're singing songs to on Sunday morning. I hate to say that, and it's a frightening thing to say, but I believe it with all my heart. The Holy Spirit being God is not okay with the sin that you have reveled in. He's not okay. Hear me now. Hear my heart on this. He's not okay with the destruction and the heartbreak that you have brought upon yourself in your life to this point. You know that the destruction and heartbreak, by and large, the destruction and heartbreak that we have in our lives is crap that we bring on ourselves. Now, there are some things where, you know, people are abused, the children are abused, People are taken advantage of and manipulated and all that mess that is this sick world that needs Jesus and needs him to come back, right? But by and large, a lot of the stuff that we deal with is self-inflicted. And the Holy Spirit is not okay with that. That's why, the, that's why he's always telling you, this is not who you are. You were made to live for so much more. It's that voice, still small voice in the back of your head. Mm. The church that does not speak, the church that does not speak what the Spirit says to your churches is not your friend. That, that church is not your friend, as they say, right? But it's dead. It's a dead church. My goodness. So let's keep reading verse 2. He keeps, he keeps going. He jumps in right into the uh, encouragement. He says, be watchful. I've got nothing good to say about you. Just be watchful. <clears throat> so here's your, your encouragement. Be watchful. And it's kind of a sad encouragement if you ask me. <laughs> he says, uh, strengthen the things which remain. Oh, whatever you got left. I mean, you don't have much left. But what you do have left, strengthen those things, okay? Because, you know... They're ready to die. You know those things that, that remain? They're, they're so barely hanging on that those good things that are... The good things you still have left in your church are ready to die. Now, you're still rich. You're still busy. You're still active, right? You're still all of those things. But the things that remain that the Holy Spirit would have you do, the spiritual element, the, we're to, the doctrine that is pure that are ready to die, strengthen them. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Not found your works perfect before God. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Remember how you heard when you first heard the gospel. Remember how you received the Holy Spirit. And then hold fast, hold on to them. Now I get this, I get this visual, like 
things that remain that are barely there, that, that there are, those things are ready to die. For the, hold on. Hold on with all you can with your fingernails if you have to. Hold on to them. Hold fast. Repent. Metanio. Change your mind. This very same thing that happens when you first put your faith in the fact that the tomb was open and that sacrifice on the cross was enough to save you and I put my hope for eternal salvation in it. The same thing that happened in your mind when you got that the first time, do it again. Do it again. Hold on and get your mind and your heart right. Course correct, he says. He continues, therefore, therefore, if you will not watch, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And there's so much into the thief, and I've covered that a million times, so I'm not going to jump into it right now. But we know that the thief comes to him who is not watching, him who is not expecting. There's the typology of it with the Jewish priests at the temple. Uh, the high priests would come and surprise the younger priests, and they'd call him the thief in the night. And we've got all of that surprise, but ultimately we know uh, the thief is one who comes as a surprise. If you, so therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. We've heard that before, right? So what do we get out of this? Church, come on now. Hear me out. Look at me. You look at me right here. You see me? This is the sleeping church. As Cyrus would say, right? Sleeping. Biz, rich. Rich. Busy. Activities taking the name, having a name of being the church, a name for being, uh, a reputation for being alive. Jesus, 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 but dead. Asleep. Watch. Watch for what? Therefore, if you'll not, if you'll not watch, if you'll not watch, what, are they, what should they be watching for? Anybody? Can I see this next graphic? We're told to watch a few times in the scriptures. Let's see. Here's a screenshot for you. Why don't you guys look up every single one of these for me, huh? Take a screenshot, write them down as quick as you can. <laughs> We're told to be vigilant in Matthew chapter 25, the 10 virgins with the oil. Watchfulness is referenced in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful of other things. What? What are we watchful of? We're watchful of the for the wiles of the devil, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Be watchful of temptation. Matthew 26, verse 41. I think this one might be the most relevant for us. They're all relevant, but his coming. Watch for his coming. Matthew 24, verse 42 through 43. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 37. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Be watchful of false teachers as well. This one is particularly relevant to the letters of the churches because uh, in Acts chapter 20, Paul told the church in Ephesus to be watchful of the wolves that would rise up among them and lead uh, many in the church astray. And ultimately, when Jesus uh, writes a letter to the church in Ephesus in uh, chapter 2, he tells them that they did a good job. They did a good job at that. So that's awesome. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 reads uh, to us simply this, But you, brethren are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are not in darkness. The thief is a thief in the night. So confusing. I know a lot of people say, when's Jesus coming? But I don't know. We'll never, I guess we're, not, we're never going to know when Jesus is going to come back because he's going to come back as a thief in the night. We'll all be surprised. That's not 
if you just read the next verse, <laughs> it says, but you are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. No, because why? Because you're, what, everybody say it? Watching. Yay! Right. The church of Sardis is not watchful. They're not watching, among other things. Guess what? Uh, they're rich. They're busy. They're active. <laughs> they're not watching, though. They're not watching. The de denominational churches of today, can I see this graphic? They all share, they all share, we'll call them the denominational churches, they share some uh, similarities. First of all, they're soft and hermeneutical traditions. What is that? When you read the Bible and you interpret scriptures, those are your her hermeneutics. Did you know that everybody has hermeneutics? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a big word saying when you read the Bible, how do you interpret it? Well, they're soft in their traditions. We believe that the Word of God is uh, perfect, that the original, obviously there are translational issues, but the original Greek and Hebrew were perfect. Every I dotted, every T cross, every yacht, every tittle is there intentionally, and we discover that more and more the more we study the Word of God. So we believe it means what it says and it says what it means. It's literal. We take it literal. And the more we do, the more it proves itself to be the correct approach denominational churches today, and I'm looking at you Presbyterians, I'm looking at you Lutherans, I'm looking at you Methodists, and I was raised Lutheran, I get to say that. My goodness. They're soft, and uh, they don't believe in literal interpretations. They don't believe in literal interpretations. So they're, they're lost on so much truth. They're lost in even what to look for. They're lost on what hour of history they're even living in. Let's go back to the graphic. They deny the millennial reign for the first century after Christ. They said they began to began to say that they were in the millennial reign. Especially the Catholics said that, but it carried over to the Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and so on. They said we're in the millennial reign until a thousand years were over. Then they kind of stopped saying that. It became problematic once we're two thousand years into a one thousand year reign, right? Yet some. Some of these people, ones I've already mentioned, still say we're in the millennial reign, even though it's been more than a thousand years. They deny Israel's prophetic destiny. As a matter of fact, many of these churches are pro-Palestinian state, if you can believe it or not. They deny, they say that we have now just taken a step into the promises that God has for Israel. That's now the churches. We are grafted in through Abraham. Now those promises are for us and not for Israel anymore. That is heresy. First of all, uh, let me first say that, uh, yes, we are grafted in into the promises of Abraham, this, the man of faith, right? Through the line of Abraham came Jesus, and by faith we are saved, and there is your correlation, and there is the grafting, okay? But in no way does it say anywhere say, and now the things that were meant for Israel are now meant for you instead, Gentile. Never says that anywhere, but that's what they teach. That's what they believe. So they poo-poo on Israel stuff. They don't support Israel. As a matter of fact, um, I know some Presbyterian churches that are outright advocating against the nation of Israel. You'd think if they'd, here's the problem with not being soft on, soft on your hermeneutics, your interpretations, is if they had just stayed to, uh, stuck to good doctrine, then when Israel was reborn in 1948, this wouldn't be confusing at all. Obviously, the third prophesied kingdom of Israel is reborn, and here it is. Uh, they also, going back to the graphic, you witness an absence of biblical devotion in their lives. We're talking on a personal level here. You know, they hit an hour of church on Sunday and then that's it. And you would never know they were even a Christian based on their lifestyle apart from that one hour a week that they're at church.
Hmm. Does anybody know anybody like that? Am I speaking to anybody like that right now? You know, there's a point in my life where I wasn't living right for the Lord in my early 20s. I'm open about it. And, and I remember, I'll, I talk about it often. I'll say, you know, there was a point in my life where I just had to ask myself, and I, my mom probably asked me it actually first, but in any case, I had to ask myself a question. Does anybody else in your life, would they know you were Christian if you didn't tell them? And I was frightened by the answer. And honestly, I made a decision to turn my life around, change some structural things in my life, like where I lived and everything else. So uh, this is a problem. This is a problem in the church of Sardis, in this church that is alive and well today. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, let's go back to the graphic. They also de-emphasize the gospel of Christ. We talked about the bloodless cross already, right? Not to mention the fact that they ordain and celebrate homosexual lifestyles uh, and other things like that. And that's just one of them. I could, I could pick a number of other things, but that's kind of a... Gay marriage is kind of a big deal as far as when you get off into uh, teachings that are non-doctrinal teachings. All right? We'll come back to that graphic in a little bit. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 4. Verse 4. <clears throat> you have a few names even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. So in this church, there are still a few who are legit. They are true believers still. They are still saved. Their Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. They do believe in him. They do put their hope and their trust and their faith in the finished work of the cross, not their own works. Okay? They have not defiled their garments. They've not. So their garment is what? It's still pure. Why? Because it's the it's the righteous robe of Christ, okay? Not their own, not their own works. Then they shall walk with me in white, he says, for they are worthy. Now he gives that promise to the overcomer. Remember who the overcomer is. That's you, signed, sealed, and delivered believer. Promise to the overcomer. Verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Again, there's white. They will walk with me in white. They shall be clothed in white. Okay, he's repeating something here. And if you know anything about scriptures, when it repeats something, it's wanting to emphasize a point in white and white. Okay, let's just keep reading. We'll come back to that. And then he says, and I will not, somebody underline not for me, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. On Sunday, we talked about the three books that the Talmud records that are supposedly opened up on Yom Teruah traditionally, right? The book of life is one of them. Life everlasting, eternal life. Your name will not be scratched out of that book. Okay, But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Think, look, think of that. Oh, man. Jesus is going to say your name. Can you think about that for a second? Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord, Oh, Jesus, who loves you, loves us so much, he will speak your name. Who's watching this right now? I, I wish I could see the names on the feed. I'd just start calling them out right now. Your name, your name, your name. He's going to speak your name before the Father and confess to you before the Father and the angels, this one is mine. This one belongs to me, he'll say. How sweet, how precious. My goodness. Verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear it. 
Whew, come on now, church. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear it? Mm. Now, I've been saying this as we've been traveling through these letters. He that hath an ear comes after, in this letter, after uh, the promise to the overcomer. I've been, telling, I've been pointing out where that falls in each letter. The first three letters, he that hath an ear, came before... It was, it, was, it was in the script. It was before he said, He that hath an ear, let him hear. This one, like last week, Thyatira, it comes postscript after the promise to the overcomer. And when we're done with all seven, I'm going to give you that significance. I'm just going to keep telling you where each letter falls until we get to the last one. And I say, here's why that matters and is pretty cool. Okay, so we're going to save that one for the last week. So don't, uh, don't miss any of these messages or you'll miss the... the you know, surprise, okay? Uh, but in white, in white, let's get back to that. Can I see this graphic? In white, why is he referencing, why is, what's the deal with whites, okay? Well, the presence of white in Revelation is actually quite significant. Jesus, Jesus' head was white as snow. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, remember that? They will walk with me dressed in white. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white. Heaven's citizens will be dressed in white. So, saints, I hope you like white. Me, personally, I'm probably going to get a lot of tomato sauce and ketchup or chicken grease on mine. I don't know if white's going to work. Ah, we'll see. Anyway, the martyrs wore white robes. Uh, they redeemed multitudes. Redeemed multitudes were arrayed in white robes in Revelation 7:14. The Lord will come on a white horse. His armies clothes are in white he, when they will be also on white horses in Revelation chapter 19. White is the color of dazzling light. Dazzling light. The antithesis. Think about this. It, what does it represent? It is the antithesis of darkness and night. It represents purity. It represents innocence. Mm. But you know, more than more often than anything else, you know what it represents? It represents joy. It represents triumph. Triumph and joy. Great joy, church. God dwells in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Paul tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. And you think of Moses when he saw that light, his hair turned white, right? Jesus' garments, when he went up the Mount of Transfiguration, we talked about this on Sunday. In Mark chapter 9, verse 3, his garments were white. So let's recap. What have we learned so far? What have we learned so far through our study thusly? Okay? Through the five churches, we have learned a few things. Okay? Can I see that graphic? Let's take a look. Ephesus, devotion, not just doctrine. Don't lose your first love. Okay? Smyrna. Endure persecution. So the Ephesus, let me say this. Ephesus, they got so busy doing church that they forgot why, right? Smyrna, endure persecution. Endure persecution. And he encourages them. Pergamus, don't marry the world. Stand fast against the wiles and temptations of the world. Don't marry the church. Thyatira, we studied last week. Don't compromise. Don't be manipulated or manipulate others. Don't tolerate those pagan practices because that's what they are and where they come from. Okay? And Sardis, tonight, what can we learn from Sardis? <clears throat> A lot. But we'll just say this. Watchful diligence. Okay? Watchful diligence. 
But what about the, pro uh, the prophetic profile? What about the, pro we can't close until we put this piece of the puzzle together, can we? We obviously know that this church is alive and operating today. If, if through this study, you couldn't think of one church that met that criteria, I don't think you're paying attention. So we know that this a lot, a church is alive and operating today, but where do we find its birth historically? That's what we're looking for in this prophetic profile when we start out, if you recall our previous messages, we, messages, we say, why these seven churches? Why specifically? Why not Jerusalem? Why not Antioch? Why these seven? And well, we know that there were local churches that had these real problems. They were churches that were really dealing with these problems that the church would forever deal with, and they had, there were angels over these specific churches. But quite possibly, uh, could there be a significance to the churches and also the order that they're in, in in regards to church history leading up all the way to now? So let's take a look at that prophetic profile. When we study Ephesus, we saw a church that loved doctrine, was protective against the wolves over their doctrine. They were the apostolic church, quite possibly. Again, this is all conjecture, guys. So this, is, this piece of what we're doing in this study is conjecture. Uh, Smyrna, the persecuted church. We saw a period of church history right after the Apostolic Age that the church was persecuted more than any other era in history until we get to Pergamus, which was possibly the married church, which first let paganism, was the church that first let paganism into the church, into the church itself, uh, and married the world, uh, married paganism. And we saw Thyatira last week, quite possibly as we studied the medieval church. I don't have time to get into each one of these now and why. You just have to go back, back and watch the previous uh, messages. Sardis, I say, I'm going to call it, for, better, uh, um, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call it the denominational church. Okay. Uh, wh what case do I have to make other than everything that we read, which I think is pretty compelling, but historically, why would this be quite possibly the, the, the denominational church. Let, let's look at these next few graphics before we close. It was the 13th century. The 13th century that the papacy became vulnerable to attacks. Greed, immorality, cruelty, and ignorance led to resentment uh, among those who were ruled. At one point, the Catholic Church controlled as much as one-third of all of the land of Europe. I want you to wrap your mind around that for a second, okay? And it, guess what? It was tax-free, tax-free. So the land-poor peasantry may have resented that fact most of all, by the way. In any case, resentment was boiling over by the 13th century. In the 14th century, English reformer John Wycliffe, and I mention this because... We have to say his name. We just we have for studying church history. We have to say his name at some point. So I'm happy, happy I get to. Uh, he was an incredible reformer uh, in the 14th century, and he was before uh, um, Luther. Uh, English reformer Wycliffe boldly attacked the papacy, striking at the sale of indulgences, the excessive uh, venerations of the saints, you know, praying to saints and all that stuff, venerating the saints, uh, dead humans, in other words. Uh, he railed against, uh, railed against the moral and intellectual standards of ordained priests. They were failing intellectual and failing morally, big time. 
to reach the common people, he translated the Bible into English rather than Latin so people could actually read it for the first time in hundreds of years. Then, in 1455, the Gutenberg Press was invented and the Bible was the first book ever to run across a printing press. How cool is that? Then, your piece of church history tonight, then this happened in October, on, specifically, on October 31st of the year 1517. Do we have this? Martin Luther nails his 35 thesis to the door at Wittenberg College, famously. And we usually teach about that. Uh, it's pretty profound and awesome. We uh, usually talk about that uh, closer to Reformation Day. Didn't you know that October 31st is it's a famous day? It's Reformation Day after all, right? Well, then on December 10th, 1520, Luther publicly burned his excommunication letter. And guess what? The Reformation was born. But you know what happened after that, church? Come on. Come on with me, church history buffs. Centuries of wars followed. Centuries of wars. By some estimations, 50 million Christians were slaughtered by the Catholic Church for heresy. You talk about... You talk about genocide. You talk about um, the Holocaust being horrifying. Some 50 million Christians were believed to have been murdered for heresy by the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Dark Ages. By the time it all shook out, division had set in. And by that time, the, the, the wars, the wars of, of the Protestant and Catholic wars in the Catholic Church was slaughtering hundreds and thousands. By the time it all shook out, division had set in in the Protestant Church, dividing itself more and more with every departure from sound doctrine, with every departure from or in defense of biblical truth, another division happened. Can I see this next graphic? And that's where we get into truly what is denominationalism. <laughs> I just made that word up. I don't think that's a real word. Denomination, denominationism sounds good to me, right? You see the history. Do I have to read through all that? You get the point. Eastern Orthodoxy, the Waldensians, right? And I'll give you the Lollards, John Wycliffe. There he is. His uh, counterpart was John, Jan Hus, who was, uh, he was murdered for heresy by the Catholic Church. Then Lutheranism, Martin Luther, the Anabaptists. The, you keep going. Calvin, 1536, Calvinism popped up. The Catholic Church was uh, <coughs> uh, doing some tricky things uh, uh, trying to control nations at that point, you know, saying, uh, trying to say that, you know, they would damn an entire nation to hell if the king didn't do what the Pope wanted. And John Calvin came up with this idea that was Gnostic in origin that would liberate, uh, liberate them from the idea that any Pope could ever tell them where their eternal soul was going to be, that there was predestination, all that. Anyway, we do a big study on that. Uh, we can come back to it sometime. John Calvin, the terrible for the church, the terrible division. So we see divisions continue. Divisions continue all the way through the French Calvinists. The, can we go back to that graphic real quick? We get the Scottish Presbyterians and John Knox, famously. Uh, the Quakers in 1647. Methodists with John Wesley in 1739. Um, Unitarian, Unitarianism, which is a horrible many paths to God teaching, William Channing there. 
uh, all the way to the Seventh-day Adventists coming around in 1863, uh, Christian Science in 1879. I hadn't realized that they were that old, but yes. And then 1914 comes to the Assemblies of God. So we see all of these divisions in Christ coming, or divisions, well, yeah, in Christ, divisions in the church. <sighs> I wish I could tell you that church history was pretty, but it's anything but, guys. The, the, the truth, the simple truth of the gospel, the yoke of Christ being easy and light, salvation by faith, faith plus nothing equals salvation. That beautiful simplicity of the gospel that transforms your heart and your mind and sets you on fire for Jesus, transforms you. That, that simple message and gospel has been under attack from the beginning all the way to the Catholic Church that tried to hijack it. Married, the, the church married the world and it was high, the gospel was hijacked for wealth and, and wicked, wickedness. And all the way to the wars to liberate ourselves from the Catholic Church and then the Protestantism itself falls into division and disrepair. Until the final insult and betrayal to the reformers themselves, I'll say this, the final insult and betrayal to the reformers themselves comes to us here. Can I see that graphic? March 29th, 1994, a joint declaration was signed called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, the Christian mission in the third millennium. The compromise of the gospel lies at the very heart of this agreement. But guess what, church? The gospel hasn't changed. So how can we compromise the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, if the gospel hasn't changed? How can we meet in the middle with people who pray to Mary? venerate saints, practice open paganism in the name of Jesus. Then in 1999, the Catholic and Lutheran churches agreed, uh, the Catholic and Lutheran churches agreed uh, a joint decla declaration on the doctrine of justification that, res that resolved many of the theological issues at the heart of the schism. This document has now been welcomed and affirmed by the Anglican community. And then just recently in 2017, we saw joint meetings of evangelical leaders and the Pope. We saw Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland up in there, Greg Laurie up in there. We saw them all up in there. And on October 23rd, 2017, this is kind of like the capstone here, Copeland, Kenneth Copeland himself, you can go watch the video, declares that the Reformation is over. And that the Protestants and the Catholics, you don't represent me, buddy, all right? Joel Osteen does not represent me. Please stop speaking for evangelists, please, okay? And in any case, they declared that the Reformation is over and that the Protestant world has healed the rift with the Catholic Church. Forget the 50 million dead. Forget the fact that true sound doctrine is still toilet paper to the Roman Catholic Church today. 2017, the new apostolic reformation took it another step further when leader Lou Ingalls kisses the feet of Catholic priests at the Azusa conference. See Greg Laurie, Bill Johnson, and Todd White for being a part of it and doing the same thing. Wolves will rise up among you, church. Are you watching? Are you watching? Because you are witnessing the birth of a one world religion. Are you paying attention? How, how, how fast do you hold? Hold fast, right? How fast do you hold 
the doctrine of grace. Mm. We're witnessing the birth of a one world religion right before our very eyes, but let's back this up and revisit as we close. Where does Sardis thusly, with all this in mind, where does it fall on the prophetic timeline? Does anybody remember? Who is Sardis? The church that is dead? Where do they fall historically? Can I see this uh, prophetic profile one more time? Let's take a look. The denominational church, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, of course not. I can't say every single church because the, even even in the letter to the Revelation uh, of Re- Revelation to Sardis says there are some in among you that are still alive. Hold fast to those things. Everything in there that was good is about to die. Hold on to it. I see you there. Hold fast. Hold fast. So we can't. Not, it's not a blanket statement damning every person who happens to attend a Lutheran church. But do we not see it? Do you not see it? The denominational church. The church that, and let's see this graphic one more time just to remind you. And you tell me, you tell me. The denominational churches today, soft in hermeneutical uh, traditions, loose with the interpretation of the Bible, happy to, happy to alter, uh, happy to alter traditional interpretations of the Word of God to fit uh, the culture of the day. That's a good way of saying it. Denying millennial reign, denying Israel's prophetic destiny, which is most churches today. Most churches today. You know, we who grew up in the family I grew up in, and a lot of people, especially in Nashville, growing up in the South, don't realize that only 30% of Christendom in this country even believes in a rapture because of this, what I'm reading you right here, because hermeneutics have been abandoned. Literal interpretation of the Word of God has been abandoned. Only 30 to 36%, to check my math on that, uh, even believes that there's a rapture. So certainly Israel's significance is by and large lost. Absence of biblical devotion in your life. I mean, why? Why would you sacrifice the desires of your carnal flesh if you don't have to, right? De-emphasis of the gospel of Christ, ordaining, celebrating homosexual lifestyles. Does that church sound familiar to you today? Pray that that church not be you, not be you, because what's the church? You are the church. Pray that that church not be you, nor the ecclesia that you attend. Wealthy, but never learning. Sleeping, not watchful. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, dead, dead. The Holy Spirit is the answer to your problem. Don't cover your ears. Don't shut your eyes. Mm-mm-mm. Hear his voice. Listen. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. Hold fast. Hold fast and repent. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. I hope you're blessed by tonight's study. If you were, do me a favor and share it. Subscribe to the YouTube page. All that stuff. And I'll hope to see you guys Sunday morning at 10.30. Uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted if we're going to be meeting at the retreat or if we'll just be broadcasting online from the Life Story, uh, Life Story studio here. So we love you guys. Have a blessed week. 
And uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour out his favor and his grace. May you prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Now, one more thing before we go. If you're watching this and you're, the Lord's reminding me of something. We never want to close the service without doing this. If the Lord has brought conviction to you tonight, and you think maybe some of these things sound like you, and you, that's not who you want to be. I want you to message me and we can talk about it, okay? You can private message me or go to the webpage, lifestorychurch.com, and send us a message and uh, somebody will get in touch with you. But if you're watching this and you want to and you, and you repent, you, you want to hold fast to what you do have, if you want to change, if you want to metanal, change your heart and mind and you want to get this right with the Lord, okay? If you want to course correct right now, I want you to say this prayer with me right now. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead on the third day. And because you live, I now live. I believe that I was born for so much more than how I've been living, Lord Jesus. Lead me into that. I want that. And I want you. More of you, Jesus. More of you, Jesus. Come into my heart and make me new. I want to be transformed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just said that prayer, your life will never be the same again. Your eternal life will never be the same again. Let us know. We love you guys. Have a good night.